I'd like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning uh, to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. The first chapter in the long narrative of Elijah and Elisha's ministry in Israel. So let's hear God's word together. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and not die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let the child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his father, or to his mother, I should say. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are great, and there are no limits upon your saving power. You provide even in difficult times, you give life to the dead, and no one can stay your hand. Father, so much of our misery results from our failure to believe, our failure to see all that you are and to find rest in you. We pray, Lord, that as we meditate on your word today and hear your word proclaimed, you would open our eyes to see just how big and glorious you are. 
And in seeing you, we pray that our souls would find rest and peace, even in the midst of trouble. Father, you know the needs of every single person here today, and we pray that you would speak to them through your word. Bless the proclamation of your word, we ask. Amen. Uh, So we come to a very difficult and dark moment in Israel's history. The worship of the Lord is squeezed out of Israel by the worship of Baal. Uh, We find Jezebel, a Phoenician princess, queen in Israel, chasing out the prophets of the Lord, uh, chasing them out from the land, seeking their demise. We find that there is a drought in Israel. This is a difficult time. There's a good deal of instability. The nation is apostatizing, turning from her Lord. The burning question then is, what should the people of God do in such circumstances? In a sense, they are to do exactly what they're always supposed to do, namely look at their Lord. Look at the God who provides in times of abundance and and in times of drought. Uh, When the foundations are shaken, they are to continue to look to their God and find stability and strength in Him. As we look at this passage this morning, we will consider three things. First, sin turns life into a waterless desert. Sin turns life into a waterless desert. Second, the Lord provides in the drought. And third, the Lord gives life. Now, if we're to understand what's going on here with Ahab and uh, Elijah's message of an impending drought we first need to situate this passage in its immediate context. We need to go back to Ahab and what chapter 16 says of Ahab. Uh, We're told of Ahab's father, Omri, that we have reached a spiritual low point in Israel. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and note, did more evil than all who were before him. We're at the bottom of the barrel with Omri. Uh, But it's possible to get worse, and worse has a name, and that name is Ahab. When we get to Ahab, we're told that he's even worse than the kings who preceded him. He marries the Baal-worshipping Jezebel and erects a a, a shrine to the worship of Baal in the capital city, Samaria. The prophets of God are hounded. Israel turns from her Lord. It's important to say something at this juncture about Baal. He figures prominently in this chapter and subsequent chapters And we need to recognize that the Canaanites worship Baal as the storm god, the one responsible for providing rain and harvest. He was a fertility god. And we recognize, if we know our Bibles, that there's a conflict between the Lord and the prophets of Baal in chapter 18. It's very dramatic. We'll consider it next week. But we need to recognize that the conflict between the Lord and Baal actually begins in this chapter. Baal is the one who's supposed to send rain from heaven to give his worshipers fertile crops. Not so, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I am in charge of creation. I am the maker of heaven and earth. When I turn on the faucet, it rains. When I turn it off, it's closed. The Lord is the one who gives rain. And so understanding that Baal is the storm God responsible for rain helps us to better understand the significance of the drought that Elijah announces. Uh, so he comes on the scene, Elijah the prophet of the Lord, with dire news to the king of Israel. Uh, we note at this juncture in Israel's history that the prophet's relationship to the court is not what it used to be in David's day. Uh, the prophet was a welcome figure even when he came bearing bad news in David's court. Right? 
Uh, Nathan was welcomed by David. Things have changed. The prophet of the Lord is now on the periphery of political power. He is now an outsider who speaks truth to power. He is no longer welcome in the king's court. And so Elijah comes from outside, bearing the word of the Lord to King Ahab, leading Israel further and further into the darkness. And he declares that the Lord, the God of Israel, is going to send a drought. He doesn't specify in his announcement to the king why the drought is coming, but then he doesn't have to, because at the end of chapter 16, as we've noted, uh, Ahab is leading the nation astray in her worship of Baal. The drought is coming because Israel's king and the nation of Israel has turned its back on the Lord and has prostrated itself before an idol called Baal. If we go to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that describes the nature of the relationship that the Lord has to Israel, the Lord underscores the fact that where the nation is obedient and loyal to him, there are blessings that fall down on the nation. And when the nation turns its back on her provider, her rock, well, Deuteronomy 28, 23, and 24 describes what happens. The heavens over you shall be bronze. And the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Persist in your stubborn, idolatrous ways, and rain will be withheld. The harvest will be destroyed. Drought and famine will be your lot. Psalm 107, verses 33 through 35, speaking of the Lord. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. So the covenant curses that God promised to send on Israel are in fact coming. What is astonishing though is not the severity of the curse. It's been a long time coming. Israel from the days of Jeroboam has been going astray. What is remarkable is not that the Lord keeps his word to bring judgment on Israel. What is remarkable is his patience. He has waited and waited for a stubborn people to repent. But now at last, having persisted in their rebellion, the Lord sends a drought. And it's a terrible drought. Israel, the northern kingdom, once a, a land of brooks and flowing rivers, we're told that the, verse 7, the brook dried up. There were many brooks, presumably, during this period that ceased to flow. We're told of the uh, famine that came to the widow of Zarephath and her son. The famine is so severe, the drought is so severe, that there aren't fruitful harvests. And because there aren't harvests, there isn't bread. People are brought to the very gate of death. And in the next chapter, we're told about how Ahab and Obadiah scour the land looking for a fistful of grass to keep their animals alive. Life is diminished. It's contracted. Life has become merely about survival, not flourishing. How different Israel is at this moment from what she was under the reign of Solomon, especially when Solomon was faithful to the Lord. What was Israel like under the rule of a faithful king? 1 Kings 4.20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. If you want a summary of life under the reign of Jesus, you could do a lot worse than that one. They ate and drank were, and were happy. Life under God's king is good. Life flourishes. There is abundance. It's not contracted and narrow. 1 Kings 4.25, also under Solomon. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. 
from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Under Ahab, the vine tree, you know, the vine and the fig tree dies. Under Solomon, when he submits to the Lord, uh, Israel is a fertile land. There are vineyards and there are fig trees and human life abounds. Human beings flourish. There is fruitfulness in the land. Solomon's reign is a picture of life in submission to the Lord, a life of obedience. Where we do the will of God and walk in his ways, we, we find that life expands, that there is life and joy and peace and abundance. Holiness, the path of obedience to God, is also the path of joy and peace. On the other hand, sin is a dry and weary land where there is no water. To rebel against the Lord is to step out of paradise into a world full of thorns and thistles. Isn't that what our first parents discovered? They were given paradise. They were given the garden. And instead of thanking the Lord and submitting to him, they rebelled. And what do they discover on the other side of the rebellion? Rebellion doesn't take us into paradise. We take a step out of paradise into a waterless waste. Sin destroys and diminishes life. It saps us of our strength, our joy, our peace, and it brings finally death. In the uh, 1960s, there, there was what is called the sexual revolution. Uh, a time when, when society decided in many places that the traditional views about sexuality, the traditional conceptions of morality were stifling and they were oppressive. And we're going to get rid of these stifling morals concerning the proper uh, use of our bodies. We're going to get ri rid of those restraints. And in getting rid of those stifling restraints, we're going to find paradise. We're going to find freedom. Well, what have we found 60 years or so later? What have we discovered in our sexual rebellion against the Lord? Well, men have been brutalized through the use of pornography. Women have been objectified through uh, pornography. Uh, society is more dangerous to children than it used to be. We've walked out of paradise into a waterless wasteland. In a recent article called uh, 1968 is so over, which I thought was a great title. Uh, Mary Eberstadt observes that even the secular media is increasingly taking note of the human wreckage caused by the sexual revolution. Non-Christians are increasingly noticing this has led to catastrophe and ruin for people. It's not, it hasn't enhanced life, it's led to misery. And even in the secular media, there are voices increasingly questioning things like cohabitation and divorce. She also mentions a lengthening list of celebrities who are increasingly concerned about the pernicious effects of pornography on men and women and society. She sums up her observation this way. Six decades in, the fallout from the sexual revolution is too conspicuous to ignore, including for souls outside the church. Sexual revolution promised a utopian, free love sort of society and it produced human misery. That's what sin does. It promises paradise and freedom, but it leads finally to a grave. It leads finally to a drought. We need to recognize that because the way sin works is it casts its spell on us. 
It seduces us by promising us life will be wonderful if you disregard the law of the Lord. Just in this small way, forget, forget for a moment what God says in his word and your life will be enhanced. Understand when you feel that way about sin, life would be so good if I gave in. And you look at holiness and you feel that it's a straitjacket, you aren't seeing reality. You are under a spell. You are deceived. And the way to snap out of it is to remember the teaching of Scripture. You think you're going to a lush garden, but you're actually stepping into a waterless waste. Obedience is the path to peace and happiness. Because of Ahab's infidelity to the Lord and Israel's rebellion against her king, there's a wretched drought in the land, and that's where sin always takes us. But even though there is a drought in Israel, life contracts, the Lord knows how to provide for his people. And we see that emphasized here in two of the three episodes. Uh, the Lord tells Elijah to leave and go into the wilderness. Uh, he is fed by ravens, bread and meat, and he drinks from the brook. It's important to recognize that Elijah's departure from Israel and God's command to him to do it is not just a way for God to keep Elijah safe. It is that because we find Jezebel in the next chapter trying to kill the prophets of the Lord. So this is a way of preserving Elijah uh, to live to fight another day. At the same time, it also underscores the, the fact that there is a deeper drought happening in Israel than simply a, a drought of bread and water. He is the representative of the Lord. He is the word bearer. And his departure from Israel means that Israel has become the kind of place where the word of God is no longer accepted. Uh, Israel has become a place where the word of God has no place. And God, in commanding Elijah to leave Israel, is actually, saying, is actually taking his word from Israel. There is a drought not just of water, but there is a drought of the word. Amos 8.11 says, it's God speaking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a, th a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. As wretched as it is to ha not have water and have your harvests fail, it is even more wretched for God to take away the light of his truth and leave us to our darkness. We see just how wretched Israel is in precisely uh, the taking away of the word. She has stubbornly refused to hear the word of God, to believe it and submit to it. And finally, the Lord says, I'm taking my word out from your midst. To hear the word of God again and again and to stubbornly refuse to believe it and obey it is to harden your heart and to make yourself less receptive to it, less responsive to it, such that the time may come where we are no longer responsive to it able to see with our eyes and hear with our ears. So when we hear the word of God, our posture should always be, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Elijah has left. No place for God's word in Israel. And the ordinary means of providing food have dried up. But that doesn't mean God can't use extraordinary means to provide for his servant Elijah. And that's what he does. Ravens carrying bread and meat come in the morning and they come in the evening. There's a drought and there's famine, but the prophet of the Lord continues to eat well. What does this reveal about God? Well, God can certainly provide bread for us through ordinary means, rain and harvest. That's his normal way of providing food. But God is not limited 
to the normal means of doing something. God can use extraordinary means to accomplish his purposes. When all normal channels for getting food are gone, God exhibits great resourcefulness and creativity in providing for his prophet. God is infinitely resourceful in meeting our needs. Our trouble is we tend to think that when our options are gone, all options are gone. You know, we survey the situation. As far as we can tell, there are no options left, and we therefore conclude in our unbelief, therefore no options must be left. But just because we don't have options doesn't mean God doesn't have options. It's no more difficult for God to provide food for his people in a time of drought than in a time of abundant harvest. The Lord can provide through normal means or even extraordinary means. God is not at a loss to know how to provide for his people in times of instability and difficulty. That's an invitation to us to trust in that God, to rest in him and to say, he is our rock. When the normal channels of provision abound, we give thanks. But even when normal channels dry up and disappear, we continue to look to him who provides for his people in the wilderness. It wouldn't be the first time either. So the Lord provides here in abundance for Elijah. And uh, we note that he doesn't cease to provide for Elijah when the brook dries up. Uh, at some point, again, the drought is so severe that there is no more bubbling brook. And he has to go elsewhere. And where does he go? Where does God tell Elijah to go to get food? Not a place in Israel or even Judah, but into Phoenicia. Baal land where Jezebel is from. Uh, he is to go there. And we're told in verse 9, or rather God says to Elijah, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Compare verse 9 to verse 4. You shall drink from a brook, and I have commanded the, raisins, the ravens to feed you there. I have commanded a widow to feed you there. See that? Uh, God first provides, orders things so the ravens come. And then he orders things so that the widow uh, would provide nourishment to Elijah. And you think about it, this is very striking as well. What is God's channel for provision to Elijah? In one case, birds. In another case, a destitute widow. God will provide abundantly through a widow without resources and ravens. So go Go to Phoenicia, the place where Jezebel is from. This was the center of Baal worship, this whole area. It is intriguing, isn't it, that Jezebel leaves this area and comes to Israel, and then God goes through his messenger into Baal's territory. And this is part of that conflict between the Lord and Baal. What we see is the Lord is able to provide not just in Israel. He's able to provide even among the nations, all of creation belongs to him. It's his. He made it. He sustains it. He provides wherever. He does for the people of Baal what Baal should have done, and that is provide for them. And thus, the Lord shows his power and supremacy as the only God. We also get here an inkling of the direction that the story of Scripture will take. The word of the Lord given originally to Israel was never meant to stay simply in Israel. It was always meant to go from Israel to the nations. And we see as we follow the unfolding of God's story, how that, hap how that transpires, especially as we get to the New Testament, the word moves out to the Gentiles. Here, here's a prophet in need of food. He goes among the Gentiles. 
He goes to Zarephath, and he finds a widow gathering sticks. He very innocuously asks her, would you get me some water, please? And she says, sure. Goes to get him water. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, uh, as you get me water, would you also get me some bread? Well, that's a bit of an issue, she says. Uh, I don't have anything baked. I have a fistful of flour and a little bit of oil, and I have enough just for one more meal. I'm collecting these sticks to bake that. After I have my final meal with my son, then we die. The drought has brought famine and scarcity. And this is very strikingly her final meal that she is preparing, and then she and her son will die. This is a woman without social connections and resources and support. She is one step removed from death. And when Elijah comes to her, God is not simply providing food for his prophet. He is also taking care of this widow and her son. If in the previous miraculous provision of bread, we see the power of God to use extraordinary means to provide for his people, we see in this passage the compassion of God for the nobodies of the world. The nobodies of the world are somebodies to God. People without resources and connections matter deeply to God. And this is an important theme in Scripture. That God being very great, precisely because he is very great, he takes note of the lowly, the nobodies. Psalm 138 verse 6 puts it this way. Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. People without options, people without resources, people without education, sophistication, money, influence, power. Those, God is interested in those people. He takes care of those people. He hears their prayers and knows the anguish of their heart. This reveals that the Lord is, yes, powerful, but also compassionate. And if the sorrows of a Gentile woman get his attention, how much more our sorrows, the sorrows of his sons and daughters, those who belong to him and have been washed of their sins by Jesus Christ. So that's the woman's situation. But there's hope for her. Elijah announces, do not fear. I know it looks bleak, but there's hope. Go and do what you've said. Get me water. And notice the wording here. First make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. I hear you. You don't have much left. Here's what I want you to do, though. Go ahead and make the bread first for me, and afterward feed yourself. Okay? Here's why. The Lord will abundantly bless what meager provisions you have. He will turn your scarcity into abundance. Thus says the Lord. Do you believe it? If you believe it, make it for me first. Do you see, do you see how the word, both, the word of the Lord both consoles and challenges? Right? And she is confronted with a choice. Will she take the safe route? The safe bet is to eat whatever you have, you know, for yourself and for your starving child. That's the safe bet. Or do you believe the word of the Lord that challenges our common sense and says, give it to the prophet first? I don't know, maybe some of you are like me. I'm, uh, I'm cautious by nature. I'm not a risk taker. You know, prudence is the crucial word in my vocabulary. The safe bet is the one uh, you know, that, that I'm drawn to. For cautious types like us, whoever you are, you know who you are. 
It's important to reflect on this passage. What faith means sometimes is that you don't listen to the demands of worldly prudence and common sense. What faith means is taking a risk, giving your last bit of flour and oil to God's man, and trusting that the Lord will indeed provide. That, at times, is what faith looks like. Wasn't that, wasn't that the case for Abraham? He's an old man, he's in the 70s. The word of the Lord comes and says, leave home, leave familiarity, leave comfort, and go you know not where. Just follow me. You will be a wanderer. And faith sometimes means saying, yes, Lord. I'll go where you lead me. I have no idea where you're taking me, but I will go where you lead me. I'm not taking the safe path, but the path of faith. Well, the woman believes. She, she brings the food to Elijah. And we're told the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word, the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. God was able to take her scarcity and turn it into abundance. Does that remind you of a miracle performed by Jesus at any stage of his ministry? If you know the Gospels, even at a superficial level, can you think of a miracle in the New Testament that's a bit like that one? Well, there's an occasion where Jesus has handed a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and there are thousands of hungry people in front of him, and he takes that scarcity and he multiplies that scarcity into abundance, and he feeds the hungry multitudes. God is a God who can take meager resources and multiply them to produce one meal after another. And again, in both of these episodes, with an emphasis on food and feeding and provision, we see something significant and essential about the Lord. He's our provider. Even when ordinary ways of getting things are done, he sends ravens. He causes scarcity to abound. That's the kind of God he is. He is our rock. And therefore, whether we do well or society does well and it abounds and there's stability or not, we always have one who takes care of us and provides for us. In times of instability, uncertainty, and drought, we are invited to look to the Lord, trusting that he will meet every need that we have. This is especially encouraging to us as I think many people increasingly feel we, that we live in an uncertain, unsettled, tumultuous society. There's increasingly there's increasing concern about what AI mean will mean for the future. Chat GPT, what kinds of jobs will be obsolete in 10, 15 years? People think about this and they wonder, uh, where's the economy going? Inflation. Is it still a good bargain for me to send my kid to college? Is, that, is college still a good value? We feel like the old rules no longer apply and the new rules are being written and we don't know which way to go. There's a lot of uncertainty, instability. And in seasons like, like that, the spiritual danger is that you'll turn in on yourself and become fixated on yourself and, and protecting yourself and making sure that you and your family are safe. And there's a lot of worrying about the future and making sure that you're staying ahead of everything. There's a lot of self focus in times of instability. How do we resist that temptation to turn in our, on ourselves and become selfish in times of instability? Well, the answer is we look to the Lord. If the Lord, with his infinite resources and creativity, is going to take care of me and my family, then I can afford to look outside of myself to the needs of others. It is by trusting in the Lord to be my rock and my provider in times of need, even in difficult times, that I can be free not to just think narrowly about myself, but consider others. 
What was the sign that the widow believed that God would provide for her? How was her faith expressed in this moment? It was expressed by her willingness to make food for Elijah first. When you believe that God richly provides everything you need in every season of life, when you believe that, the result will be that you put others ahead of yourself. You consider the needs of the people around you, and you meet those needs in a large-hearted, generous way because you know God's going to take care of you. When you know that in your bones, you are deeply anxious, but not about yourself, about the happiness and well-being of the people around you. You know that you're trusting in the Lord's provision for yourself and your family when you're generous, when you can fling away money and time and the good things of life toward other people with a smile on your face. When you can do that, it's a sign that you are trusting in the Lord, even in uncertain times. As you assess your life, would you say that you're turned inward with anxiety, fretting about how you and your family will fare now and in the future? Or is there confidence? Confidence that the Lord will provide. The danger is that we're going to look forward and spend all of our time scheming and planning about what we're going to do if this or that happens, and we're not going to be faithful in our present responsibilities. I think that's, that's the real danger here, right? We're so consumed with how do I protect myself that we fail to be good Christians right here, right now. We fail to read books to our kids, be good neighbors, have a meal with people, work hard, because we're so concerned about the future. Trusting in the Lord's provision frees us from the tyranny of self-preservation and enables us to serve the people around us. That's what faith in God's abundance looks like practically. So God, we see in this multiplication of meager resources, uh, God is able to sustain life in difficult times. But it's one thing to postpone death, it's another thing to raise the dead to life. So that we, we take a step forward in this final miracle. A period of time goes by, we don't know how long. And uh, having dodged one bullet, the widow experiences an even greater or as great of a calamity, that is her son dies. And she says bitterly to Elijah, man of God, you've come in here to bring my sins to light and bring down God's judgment on me. This is often how people feel in the presence of the holy. They feel naked and exposed. Man of God, you are bringing my sins to light. You know, why have you come and brought death to my son? She connects her sinfulness to the death of her son. Elijah says, give me the boy. He goes upstairs and he intercedes on her behalf. Give me your, uh, give me your son, he says to her and then says to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Intercedes for her. And then he places himself three times on the corpse. And the point here is that he is symbolically, as it were, transferring life from himself to the corpse. And it's intriguing because the law says that if you come into contact with a dead body, even walk into a room, that death pollutes you. It defiles you. But here, it's not death that is defiling life. It's life that's swallowing up death. And the Lord hears Elijah's prayer. And the boy comes back to life. The Lord has answered. And he brings that child down. 
And then we, we see the significance of that impartation of life. The woman says in verse 24, the, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She's known sort of that he's a man of God. She says as much in verse 18. But when does she really come to know that he's a man of God? When the dead rise. When life comes to the dead, then she sees you are a messenger of the Lord. And by implication, God's calling card is resurrection. When the, when the dead are raised to life, you know that the Lord is there. Here's how one uh, commentator puts it. When life comes from the grave, we know that we are in the presence of God. He is Lord not only of the living, but even of the dead. And when by his sovereign authority he summons the dead to life, they listen. Can you think of a miracle in the ministry of Jesus that also is anticipated by this miracle, the ministry of Elijah? You may think of the uh, daughter of the synagogue ruler, Jairus. Uh, that little girl dies. Everyone loses hope. And then we're told in Mark 5, 41 through 42. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. If Jesus takes you by the hand, death can't hold you. He reaches down into death and brings this girl to life. But what's different about this miracle from Elijah's is there's no praying to God, right? Elijah petitions God and he places himself over that corpse three times. Jesus simply says, live, and she lives, which shows us that this impartation of life in the ministry of Jesus demonstrates that he's not simply one more man of God in a long succession of men of God. It shows that he is God incarnate, who himself has the authority to speak and the dead live. In Jesus, we see the Son of God come into our world who has the authority to summon the dead things of the world back to life. In John 11, Jesus says to a grieving woman, I am the resurrection and the life. I have the authority to speak those who have died back to life. When Jesus is killed, when he's crucified by evil men, he doesn't remain dead. He rises again triumphantly to an order of life that is forever beyond the reach of death. Jesus will not ever die again. It is a conquered foe. And he says to us that all those who trust in him will also share in that resurrection victory. His victory of, over the grave is the victory of every single person who trusts in him. That life, that immortality, eternal life in a new creation is offered to every single person who places their trust in Jesus Christ as their savior. There's a passage in The Great Divorce where C.S. Lewis speaks of a woman having so much joy in her little finger that it could cause all the dead things of the universe to come to life. And what he says in a kind of poetic, embellished way of about, uh, about this character is literally true of Jesus. There's more life in his little finger. Uh, there's sufficient life in his little finger that can cause all the dead things of the universe to come back to life. When Jesus speak, uh, speaks, the dead rise. So if you're 
trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ, death for you is not the end. It's the final step to immortality. Death is not a descent into the darkness. It is an ascent to the light, which is why Paul can say in Philippians that to die is gain, and it is gain for every believer. Life after the grave will get better and better and better forever and ever and ever. So as we contemplate with every passing year our mortality, the people that we love pass from this world, we know that Jesus has conquered the grave and he will hold us also by the hand and bring us safely through it to the other side. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then as Hebrews 2 says, you won't live in the lifelong slavery to the fear of death. So many live in bondage to the fear of death. Try to squeeze out every last drop of pleasure and experience in this life because then death will come and it will be lights out forever. Human beings live in the tyranny of the shadow of death, but for those who trust in Jesus, death should hold no terror. It's the final step to life and victory forever. How do we face an uncertain world? Well, we look at the provision of our Lord in the midst of difficulty. By ordinary and extraordinary means, the the Lord provides for his people. But the Lord doesn't just provide in hard times. The Lord gives life to the dead. We know that in trusting in Jesus, we will rise again. So even in droughts, even in difficulty, even in times of instability, we have hope. We remain cheerful because there is a resurrection in front of us. That is our confidence in times of difficulty and uncertainty. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, you are very good. You have done, Lord, for us what we could not have done for ourselves. Through your obedience, through your anguish, through your suffering, through your death, we have life. Lord, we praise you and thank you for what you have done. And we ask, Lord, that you would deepen our faith in these glorious truths that your word makes known. Grant us to live with the joy of the resurrection, always burning brightly in our hearts. Amen.